Welcome to this week's edition of Taboo Talk with Jay Louder. Today we have as a guest a man out of California by the name of Ken Giedros. Ken, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, Ken, I'm really excited about the podcast today, and I'm excited about it on numerous levels. One, I have a friend that encountered a scenario not exactly the same. It's not a carbon copy, but very similar to what you walked through. Ken has written a book, and I don't want to give out too much information because this is a really amazing story, and I think it's going to connect with people on a lot of levels. But he has written a book. It came out, I believe, last September. Is that right, Ken? Yes, September, yep. Yeah, and the title of the book, I'm I'm not going to give the subtitle, just the title, and it's entitled Letters to My Son in Prison. Ken, you have such an amazing story. Let's just start off today so our listeners can kind of get introduced to who you are. Tell folks a little bit about you. Yeah, I'm I'm 64, so I've been around a while, <laughs> and uh, I served out of, out of college as a pastor. So I, I did that for 10 years. I went to school in Colorado, was an Army brat, so went all over the world. Graduated, by the way, in the amphitheater of Ephesus in Izmir, Turkey, wow. where the letters, yeah, uh, referring to the letters of the Ephesians and also where Paul preached. So that's uh, that's kind of in my DNA. But I was a pastor with the Church of Christ and, and had decided while in college to do so, did that for 10 years, resigned the ministry, had three sons, kind of back to back, and it was a little bit of a pressure situation. I was in Toronto and relocated to Los Angeles, where I live now. Did um, another gig for about 10 years, got an MBA at Pepperdine, and was life was, was good. Doing The kids were great. Family was great. And then around 98, 99, our local congregation, which is about, about 50 people at the time, needed a, a, a pastor. So we did a search for about a year, and then the nod came to, to me and my wife to do so and lead this congregation out here. So I went back in the ministry for about a, five years here in Los Angeles. Congre- congregation grew to a couple hundred but that's kind of the genesis of, of, of my story in, in terms of the book. During that five years, it was very challenging on my family. And, and so I ended up resigning the ministry. And then for the last 20 years, I've designed retirement plans, which may sound like an odd gig. <laughs> but essentially, it's just taking what the government allows for companies to do in retirement plans, essentially the IRS side of it, the tax side of it, and then crafting the kind of you know legal plan that a company can adopt. So that's what I've done for 20 years. I, I, I'm kind of a national coach and speaker on that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of been the the, uh, the journey. Is this your first book, Ken? 
You know, I crafted a, a business book called Beyond the 401k back in 2010. But yeah, as far as a personal book, this is it. I was to our listeners, I was talking with one of my staff members earlier today, and I haven't had a chance to finish the book. But a staff member told me this morning that literally they cried all the way through it. And I can't wait to, to finish this book. I was captivated when I first found out just the title of it. And as a person in ministry, and I, I know some folks can relate to this and some folks can't, but even if you've not been in ministry, inherent with being a believer, somebody plugged into church, and especially if you're in a pastoral position, there's a lot of pressure there. And it's not just the pressure upon you, but there is the pressure upon your family as well. Can I be curious? I guess at some level, you being a pastor, it's not really that far-fetched. It, it's, it sounds like that's not really something that you were initially planning on becoming, but really with your background, it's, it, it, it fits in the alignment, really. Certainly, it, it, it's in my DNA, if you will, and was initially. It, it, it's there, the desire to help people, the desire to take a message, certainly the broad Christian message, but even even the message of something that's happened in your life to people is it, just there in both my wife and I. It just is. Right. But the idea of going back in the ministry, especially as my oldest was t- you know, knocking on the door of adolescence, that was not in the plan. <laughs> well, and I underestimated. Kids, did you say, Ken, when you actually took the position as pastor, how old were you? Did you have all three sons at the time? Yeah, I did. There were, yes. When I went back in the ministry, it was 14, 13, and 11 is how old they were. So they were just about to enter that precarious adolescent stage. Yeah, very difficult time. So take us through that. Here you are, a pastor, you and your wife. Gosh, I've got three kids as well, two boys and a girl, and life is good. You're taking a position as a pastor. You're helping build faith. You're ministering to other people, leading other people. And it seems like the prime scenario. I mean, God is using you and your family. What happens from there? It was prime in some ways. It was exciting. It was a new congregation. It was a growing city, great part of L.A., and enormous excitement. So us reentering the ministry was, was, and I don't take this wrong, but it was a little Moses-esque where you had your, your round one and then this was round two. And it went really well for about a year, a little over a year. My oldest son became a Christian was sharing his faith with just bringing all kinds of kids to the congregation. My second son was doing well. All three of them were doing really well. So for a period, it was, it was just fabulous. But then there did come a a point where my oldest, uh, he started playing uh, high school basketball, got pretty good at it, got elevated to varsity early. And you know how that kind of creates a whole new set of, of issues that he you know, just did not handle well from a Christian perspective. And so he started pushing back and that started to create tension. You you referenced pressure earlier and you're right. I agree with you, whether you're the lead pastor or you're just trying to live a Christian life and be an example to, to your friends, to your brothers and sisters, it is, there is some pressure there and there are suppositions you, that you work with, the way you were raised, how you feel you should handle pushback from uh, a son. So yes, there was enormous pressure and I started feeling it. I felt it from above me, my senior pastor. 
started to suggest certain things and how I handled them. I didn't feel good about it. I had raised my, my, my sons, Jay, with, you know, a fair amount of openness. I, I'm just that way. I'm not going to twist your arm. If you want to follow God, I'm going to do everything I can to help, but I'm not going to begrudge you or, or get weird about it. <laughs> I'm just not. It's just not how I'm wired. And nor do I feel like that's how God is, is even with us. There's, there's not a heavy hand compelling you or pushing you or forcing you. He allows an enormous amount of, of freedom. And so I tried to emulate that with my sons, but now I'm getting pressure from above, from fellow parents in the church, kind of looking a little side-eyed at me at a dance that I may let him go to or an event. And I, I chronicle a lot of this in my book, just the way it started to unravel. And then the weirdness I felt here at home, the, the then my second son starts to piggyback on what my oldest son is doing. <laughs> you can imagine now that the dominoes are starting to add up and you're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And before you know it, it really started to spin out of control. Well, my oldest ran away. Yeah. Before yeah. we get any further, a couple of things, Ken, that you, you said. First of all, I would ask you: Do you think that part of this, what's about to unfold, that of course our listeners don't yet know, do you think part of that? We know that the Bible talks about that the world's going to hate you. Do you think that there was an additional attack by the forces of darkness on your family because of the position that you were in? That, that strikes me as a little presumptuous, to be real honest with you, Jay. Huh? Sure. On one level, yeah, the answer is yes. On another level, you know, I, I, I don't know that there was a peculiarity to it. I, I just don't tend to, to, to ascribe <laughs> too, too much presumption to it, just in my own personal way of looking at it. Oh, I understand that. I just think that I really believe with all my heart that anytime somebody takes a strong position spiritually, it just makes practical sense to me yes. that the forces of darkness want to do everything they can to put a stop to that. And so I wondered at what degree that you might have felt that played a role. We can't diminish that at some level, this is a spiritual principle, you know, that there is going to be adversaries that will come against us. Obviously, the bigger stand we take. You, can, you don't have to be a believer, and you can see this in secular media. But the, True. the other thing True. you mentioned, and I know some people won't agree with this, and that's fine, but I'm a lot like you, Ken, in regards to the not pushing factor. I know too many students, they were raised in a Christian home, and their parents pushed too hard and were trying to force them into a mold that did not fit them. And I'm with you on this. God gives us all a free will. And certainly I've done everything I can to try to facilitate and cultivate and water and fertilize their faith. But at the end of the day, they have to make that decision themselves. And because I'm a full-time evangelist and because I, I have been in a position of ministry doesn't somehow put me in a position where they're required to be something that they're not. And so I appreciate that. And again, having seen so many people who have run from the faith because they were pushed too hard. I also understand the concept of the leadership above you, giving you the side eye and, 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 and trying to put pressure on you. But, but I, I'm in the same position as you can. I, I think the best position is to allow your kids to grow 
to make decisions about their faith independently of, of, of myself. Yeah, I come down on it now very much this way. I think each parent has to do what their gut and what their what the spirit within them, both lowercase s and uppercase s, both says spirit within them says. For example, I raised my boys a certain way. I then pivot as they hit the teens. That's a problem. And I'm pivoting to something they know I don't believe. And trust me, they smell it. They know it. They just start to freak out. And to, when I violated what I believe the spirit had put inside of me, capital S, that's when I went awry. Because I have seen very strict parents. There's a pastor. I'm not going to say his name just because I don't want to create any issues. But he's he runs a very strict church out here, very big, very well-known. I'm sure you've read his books. And I, I've met his son, and I could tell, well, now that guy, he really led his house with a strong arm. That's just how he is. That's how God made him. And it worked. Actually, a couple of his kids rebelled, but not, nothing overly, overly. Yes, for me and perhaps, Jay, for you, it, it intuitively and, and spiritually, the way you need to be with your children, the way that you believe God has led you. But there are those folks out there that could just, they're tiger moms and tiger dads, and they can run a house that is so strict, you almost can't breathe left to left to right. And they succeed. So I, I don't even know if it's a question of, okay, Jay, you have X amount of freedom. Can you allow Y amount of freedom? And one of you is right. I'm not sure there's a right. To me, I think there's more of a you and I listening to the Spirit of God and then following what we believe He wants us to do with our particular children. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I don't think that, and I think it's important to realize that what may work with one child may not work mm. And I grew up great point. a great home, Ken. My folks uh, love them dearly. They are great people. Uh, they've been married for decades, and they're just phenomenal folks. But I grew up in an environment where it was very legalistic, where you were considered a good Christian based on the things that you did do and based on the thing mm. that you didn't do. And so it took me a long time to break out of the mold to realize that it really wasn't about this legalism aspect of what I did and didn't do. It was a whole lot more about relationship and that God wanted mm. a relationship with me. For so long, I equated that if I wasn't doing certain things, that I was good spiritually. And that wasn't true. You can still mm. see this even in the Bible where there were a group of people that were religious leaders called Pharisees and Sadducees, and they kept all the rules. They didn't cross the line. They towed the line, but yet they were a million miles away from God. And I've seen that in my years of ministry. So many people who do the same thing, they equate yeah, it's very true. because they're not breaking the rules, but there is no, there's no real relationship. And so anyway, I didn't want to park there too long, but I just appreciated what you said. And I would assume that again, we have people that listen to this podcast from every walk of life. Maybe there's some parents today that 
they're struggling with their own kids and they're trying to navigate that line. And sometimes it's a tightrope and figuring out. And, and I even know with having three kids that there have been conversations that you handled one kid one way and one kid another. And that's because it needs to be approached that way. So anyway, yeah, yeah. just an interesting thought and something I appreciated that you had to say. You talked about that here you are in a pastoral role and one of your kids, he's playing basketball and there's some notoriety that comes with that and probably some blowback because his dad's a pastor and there are certain probably expectations that maybe he feels and maybe limitations that he feels is being put on him. And of course, there's pressure that you're getting up further up the ladder and you were just about to launch into what happened from there. So pick up the story. Yeah. So he did push back and, and the other one pushed back. So now two out of three are in a posture of reticence or, or I should say rebellion. Right. So you can imagine, okay, well now, now we're, we're, uh, we're not outnumbered, but we're, it's two to two. <laughs> My other son was younger and he's just kind of hanging out at that point, but yeah, it's two to two now. And, and so, yeah, they, it, that, that became power that became an ability. So uh, I got to the point, I don't know, three, three and a half, four years in where I was going to resign the ministry just, just to take the pressure off. I was like, I don't need this. I, there's, we, there's plenty of alternatives here and it's unnecessary pressure on them more than me and my wife, but really on them. Then, then our, our church had a major crisis. I needed to stay on as a pastor for another year. They asked me to just weather the storm. Yeah, so it was it was very that last year was just painful. You, you can just if you don't mind, let me. I'd be curious to ask you in that next year where they said, "Hey, we had whatever that challenge is. We got this challenge. We need you to hang around for another year." Did you have support from people in the church? I know that you talked about, again, folks above you that were leaning on you, but were there other people in the church that knew what was going on in your family? And rather than giving you, as you said, the side eye, rather than maybe that judgmental look, people that were supportive that kind of got behind you, or was it more you felt like uh, that people were putting you further under the microscope? I really had support. I really did. I, it's the only reason I stayed around. That's good. Because, you know, any family, most families are going to have those moments. And you almost would prefer a pastor that understands and has the empathy for when your ch- kids struggle than somebody who had perfect kids. Right? So them, you know, leading from a position of I'm in the trenches with you was very appealing to them. And they were... They were fabulous. They weren't just good. They were fabulous. And yes, at first I got a lot of side eye from even some of the families, but in time they really marshaled. And then of course our church crisis made it even more so because I didn't lead them like some of the other authoritarian leadership that was happening and that caused the church crisis. You know, for them, it was the breath of fresh air to have somebody lead in a, in a servant manner as opposed to a strong, overly authoritative manner. So, yes, I had support, and I, I can't begrudge any of that at all. That's great. That's great. So unfold what happens from here. So you're in this position. You've decided to stay on for another year. There's some blowback from your son. Uh, the church has its own challenges. What, what begins to unfold? 
I, so I resigned and then it became a little bit uncomfortable. As you can imagine, the ex-pastor sitting on the back pew, arms folded with a bunch of rebellious kids next to him. That's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's just painful to look at. Hoodies are up. It's okay. Nobody wants to see this picture. Right. I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. So I church hopped for a year or so and, you know, just tried to find a place. My family starts employing. My youngest son gets in on the act, starts to uh, abuse uh, opioids as he graduates high school as well. And, oh, yeah, it was this was the darkest time. There, there just was a period, maybe the most acute period right about then. Maybe it lasted for about four or five years just of, of complete darkness where I was so despondent. As you can imagine, I've tried to raise my sons with God quiet times not not every day, not almost every day, every day, <laughs> Bible reading, inspiration, not, not because I wanted to prove it, just because this was my heart. This was my wife and I's heart. It wasn't a for show. It was legit. And then to have this happen, I mean, you talk about, it's a parenting in crisis, uh, excuse me, a crisis in parenting, but it's also a crisis in faith. God, I put you first. I sacrificed. I went back in the ministry. I, and I had a great job. I had just been promoted in my job, just been promoted. Hawaii was now my territory, <laughs> right? So I left that. I made all these, and again, I don't want to sound presumptuous or you know, holier than now, but I, I did. I made some sacrifices, and this is what I get, like a complete family implosion. And so, Jay, it was, it was as dark as I could paint for about five years. And I, I stopped going to church. It was very difficult for me to even walk into a church to sit there and listen to some young, arrogant, presumptuous uh, pastor up there telling me how great it's going to be if I seek the kingdom first. Are you, you kidding me? So, well, hey, you know, did cynicism? You got to stop. Yes. I just love your transparency on this. And I think that there are people, I don't think I know, there are people that are listening to the podcast today and they're asking that same question. And I know we were yeah. this when our daughter contracted an incurable disease. I mean, not that God owed me anything. I guess at some level I felt like he did because I said the same thing. God, I, I yeah. my whole life trying to evangelize and share the gospel with people that are lost and hurting and broken and addicted. And I've given my life to this. I've not been a perfect father, but I've tried. I've lived what I preached. I'm not one man on the road and a different man at home. I've read those scriptures to my kids. I've had them in church. They've been around the greatest preachers in the world. And now here we are in a scenario where my daughter has an incurable disease. And, and like you, and there have been other situations I won't get into with uh, another one of my kids that was another real struggle. But same thing. It wasn't just a crisis, as you said, of parenting, but it was also a crisis of faith. And again, part of it's my fault because of expecting that because I've done this and that and I've tried to live a good life and I've tried to follow God the best I can that that makes me immune to problems. And, and obviously that's not true. And I certainly can't blame God for some of the decisions that I have made and that my kids have made. And I think about some friends of mine right now. I mean, I've got a friend whose wife was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. She's one of the godliest people I've ever known. I, I love and respect her. Right. One of my staff members, her mother was in church two weeks ago on a Sunday night, a picture of health. 
and died during the church service. I think there are people like you that are listening to this podcast today and say, no, I wasn't perfect, and no, I wasn't su- the super spiritual perfect Christian, but I tried to follow God, and I tried to live my life for Him, and now I'm in this crisis of marriage or finances or career or kids. And I'd just be curious as we kind of dovetail here for a minute, what would you say to those people? Because you walked through this crisis of faith. It didn't make sense to you. And now further down the road, how do you look back on that? What is it that you would say? I love this because it's so mysterious. It's so traumatic and challenging to go through something like this. And and that's part I love about it because it it won't respond to platitudes or or to, um, you know, just easy answers. And so what did I do? I mean, I, I dug deep. Of course, I, you know, the three books that saved me were Job, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, because those are the three people, Solomon, David, and, and, and Job, who, who had this moment. Clearly, Job, of course, writes about the contract, the expectation that one has when you seek the Lord first. And of course, Ecclesiastes is about the most real guy in the Bible, paired with his dad, David. But because of their realness, I I don't know, I guess I felt like I could be real and and honestly express my feelings. Most times it was in journaling, it was on paper, where I would write things and I would, I'm so bad, I'm so legalistic perhaps, you know, I would have to preface it with, okay, God, I'm going to tell you some things I feel, but I don't really feel these things. So I'm caveating the heck out of it before I even say it. And then I can get real because I'm actually feel these things, but I don't want to say, I. you know what I'm saying? You just have all this. I don't want to upset the man. Right. But anyway, I, I did. I got real. I just got honest. And it, and there was nothing noble about it. I, you know, there was years, not, not months. There was years where it was, there was barely a spiritual pulse. I'm talking barely. So what would I say? What I, I guess I would say is, is be honest and maybe make friends with Job, Solomon, and David. I'm sorry, that those Ecclesiastes in particular. I'm sorry. That's just – I know that most Bible teachers probably wish that book wasn't in the Bible because <laughs> it's just so perfect for people like me. It was so – Perfect. I can't tell you how many times in the morning my wife, Joyce, or I would walk over to the other one. She has quiet time in the bedroom. I have it in my office. And just bring in the book and go, check this first out. Can you believe this? This is so perfect. This is exactly how I feel. And so I didn't shake my fist at God. I never cursed him. But I tell you, it was it was a life. I was on life support for not just months, but years. And and you know, a pretty amazing thing happened. I don't know if you want me to get into it, but in terms of, of resuscitation, that's its own amazing story. But that that's what I would say to them: is get real, read your, read those three brothers, and just keep reading them and re, rereading them and and hanging on with the thinnest of threads. And maybe one day the clouds will lift. I I actually love, Ken, the advice that you gave. And I'm sure some people are going to say, are you kidding me? Go make friends 
friends with a Joe, go make friends with somebody else who's going through pain. I can barely navigate my own pain, but I think there's a real wisdom in that. I mean, I think about even, I, I love the story of when Mary uh, gets pregnant and, and here she is, you know, breaking the news to, uh, to her husband that I'm pregnant, but not by you or another man, but I'm pregnant by God. And he, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I love what Mary does. She finds out that her cousin, who is the mother of John the Baptist, she goes and joins herself with her. I mean, there's somebody that else can, there's somebody that can relate that it's in a similar, uh, of course, she was pregnant by her own husband, Zachariah, but she goes and joins herself with somebody else who's in a similar scenario. And I think there's some real wisdom in that. I agree. And I also, I mean, I don't want to, I don't believe in these Christianese sayings and that's not me. And, and I don't believe in making these colloquialisms that really bring no comfort to anybody. But I honestly believe in the core of who I am. That while things oftentimes seem so bleak, even your own story, which obviously uh, we may end up making this a two-part podcast, and we haven't even got to the crux of really what happened, but I truly believe, as is proof in this story that you're telling, that there is a, there is redemption there. There's a redemptive factor in spite of the fact that there was a crisis of parenting and a crisis of faith. And you went through this place where, as you said, the, the rubble had been bombed and there's barely a spiritual pulse. You mentioned Moses earlier last night before I went to bed. I was reading Moses and and it popped in my mind as you were talking. I mean, I, I think about Moses's mother and all the male children are being killed and she's putting him in this basket and floating him down the river. She had to be saying what you said or what I said with my daughter. God, where are you? I would imagine Moses when here's a guy who is... He was brought up under the most powerful culture of the day. He was able to speak three different languages. He was in a palace, and now he is he's on the run. He's out in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, you know, he, he has to be saying, God, where are you? And then the story continues to go on when God sends him to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And I, I, I just see in all the great heroes of the faith, there were these seasons of crisis, where everything made sense, where God seemed to be, he seemed to abandon them, where all hope sent, it, it seemed to be lost. And yet, yeah. and again, I know there are other situations and somebody may be listening today and go, Jay, that's real, real good. But I have not been able to see that redemptive, that res- spiritual resuscitation, as you said. And I would say, Jay, that the redemption is in the holding on not in the cloud lifting because I, I wasn't guaranteed that my son would recover. I wasn't guaranteed that any of them would. That person who died in church, where's the redemption in that? It, you, it, it, on one level, if you measure it as, okay, God is going to answer this prayer. No, but he may not answer that prayer. He may say no. And he, he could have easily said no to me. That to me is not the redemption. The redemption is hanging on and, and having a connection to the eternal that is unseverable. And that, that's what I came to is it wasn't that my sons turned around and then uh, my faith revived. No, no. My faith revived in the darkest of times when my son was in prison and I had written, I don't want to digress too much, but I'd written a letter that was very inappropriate 
was screened, was taken, was entered as evidence against me, against him by the DA. So I, you know, I was at the, I mean, literally the lowest of lows when I feel like my own redemption, I kind of just came to that point where I just thought to myself, and I'm getting choked up here, um, that, um, God, if, if literally nothing improves, if nothing improves, I'm barely a Christian, but I'm not going to shake my fist. And I don't know. That's to me, because even you mentioned cancer earlier, so dying of can- it's like Christians get cancer at the same rate as non-Christians. It's not like there's this holy sauce that's going to uh, insulate you from life. And, and yes, was my story of all three of my sons going crazy for five, 10 years, utterly, uh, you know, out of this world? Yes. And it, but you know what? It, it just, it can happen. And the fact that God strengthened me to hold on to me, that, that that's what I'm grateful for. Wow. Well, a couple of things I want to say, and we're going to have to make this a two-part podcast, Ken. But first of all, like you said, there is no magic sauce. There's a scripture in the Bible that says God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Mm. The tornado that ripped through our city when I was a young man, it struck, as you said, the homes of believers and non-believers. But I think, Ken, you said something. I, I think this may be one of the biggest takeaways of part one of this two-part podcast. And I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. And you said this, that the greatest part was not because you didn't know whether or not there was going to be a recovery, whether your son was ever going to get out of prison, whether whether he's ever going to break an addiction. But it was just hanging on. It's real easy to hang on God and love God and sing worship songs when the bills are paid and everybody's healthy and the job is good and college is good and high school is good and all that but where do you stand when all hell breaks loose and mm-hmm. still willing to hang on? And as you said, it may be barely having a pulse. It, it may be a, 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 heart, a heart that has become somewhat hardened or jaded. But are you still hanging on? I was telling a friend of mine I had lunch with on Friday who has a wife who's going through uh, breast cancer. I told him a story about one day, and, and we'll wrap up with this and pick up part two, but... This was a turning point for me in regards to when my daughter got an incurable disease. Um, I had gotten out of ministry for a while because I was living in a hospital for over six months. And then even when my daughter got home, there was still a lot of issues. But um, it was one of the first preaching engagements after my daughter came home. And I'm, I'm still very wounded. I've got a lot of scars. I've got a lot of open wounds in a spiritual sense from what's happened to my daughter. And I'm at a gas station pumping gas. And I hear somebody say... Jay. And so a, a beautiful young lady is walking towards me. And, and in essence, she says, you're Jay Louder. I followed you on social media. I followed the story of your daughter. And um, I just wanted to tell you that uh, I'd so admire how you handled what you and your wife went through. And I, said, I appreciate that. But I've got to tell you, I didn't handle it near as well as you think I did. And uh, <laughs> it's easy to perceive that from what you see on social media. And uh, anyway, she went on to say that her and her husband were um, on the verge of a divorce. And, well, they were split up. Maybe they were going to make it. Maybe they weren't. But when I made the comment about appreciated her, her affirmation, but I had not handled it, she made a statement very similar to what you just said. She said, Jay, didn't you say that you're still 
you still love the Lord? Didn't you say that you were on your way to Atlanta to preach today? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, Jay, all that matters is, is you didn't abandon the faith in spite of your scars and your wounds and your hurt and your pain and your sorrow, you're mm. following God. And honestly, this lady, and I, I don't remember her name. I'm sure I'll never see her again. And she has no idea that one day at the gas station, what she said to me as I was trying to pump gas and get to the DFW airport was a turning point in my life spiritually because it helped mm. me remember that, you know what? Yeah, I am wounded and I am hurting and I am angry at God. I really, if I'm honest, I'm bitter at God. But yet, in spite of that, I do still love him. I've got frustration with him, but I still love him and I'm still serving him. And it helped me see, I felt so guilty about a lot of the ways I had handled it, but it shed a different light where, you know what, Jay, in spite of your failures and things that you would do differently, you are still following God. It really goes back to what you said. You're still hanging on. Ken, we, we're yeah. going to have to do part two, brother. Man, this is, we haven't even really yet got into the real deep parts of, of this book, and I want to do that. Listeners, I'll tell you what, be sure two weeks from today, you are going to hear part two of Ken Ghidros, an incredible story. Thanks for joining us this week on Taboo Talk with Jay Lauder. 